Mavis is going to come and read to us from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 29. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make every effort for your feet, so that the lame may be may be may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that, is no bit, that there is no bitter root, grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral, or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance right as the older son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his displacing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing without, with tears, he could not change that he had done. Verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that cannot be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touched the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose name was written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the sprinkling blood that speaks better things than the blood of Abel, so to so to it that you do see to it. Sorry, so see to it that you do not refuse him who speak. If they did not escape when he when they refuse him who warned them on earth, how much less will will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised once more, I will shake, the, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Therefore, the word once more, more indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Praise the Lord. Question for you this morning. How do you eat a grapefruit? The tricky thing is that it's not just sour, but it's bitter. So a lot of people, especially posh people, have grapefruit with sugar. I kind of just tear into it like a savage with my hands, but people like cut it in half and put it in a bowl and sprinkle sugar on it, and you can even get special spoons with like a serrated edge. But the sugar 
is so that we can take the bitterness. There's a famous song in Mary Poppins, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. I probably wasn't the only person who used to pretend to be sick so that I could have cowpole because it's so nice. It's not actually as nice now. They've taken the sugar out of it and now it's like a sweetener and it's not worth it. Just last time I was babysitting, I had a little try and it just wasn't good. Now the problem with adding sugar to your grapefruit or your coffee or your cowpole is that it masks the bitterness but it doesn't actually take it away. Now in the case of medicine, that's really useful. If adding sugar to medicine stopped the medicine working, that'd be a big problem. But it doesn't. It just means we can kind of deal with it more easily. The kids will swallow it. And I think it's the same for many of us with bitterness in our emotional life. We try and hide it. We mask it with sweetness, with nice smiles, maybe with saying the right thing that people want to hear. But actually, the bitterness is still there. It's still on the inside. It's still affecting us, affecting others. The sweetness doesn't take it away. It just masks it. Bitterness and unforgiveness are dangerous medicine. They're dangerous in any area of life. And over the years, I've seen how it can also be dangerous in the church. And I think that's actually mainly who the writer of this passage is speaking to here. It can be hard being in church, in our relationships. People fall out with each other. People leave. Sometimes they leave for good reasons. They're, you know, they're moving somewhere else to do another thing. But sometimes people leave because of relationships. And that is really hard. It hurts a lot. And over the years, I've had to deal with my own bitterness at times. And in my role as a pastor, I've sat with people who are consumed with bitterness about things that have happened to them, things that have been done to them. It might have been one comment 10 years ago that just is still there, that bitterness. Maybe they've even tried to cover it over with sweet smiles, but it's still there. And here in this passage today from Hebrews 12, there's a really strong challenge to us, a really strong word to us. It says this in verses 14 to 15. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now when it says make every effort there, the word that is used is actually the word, the same, exact same word that we translate as persecute. Persecute, peace. Make every effort. Hunt it down relentlessly. You know, like when, when people are being persecuted, that means they're not being allowed to, to have any space anywhere. They're, they're being chased. It's generally a bad writer's using that really strong word to tell us to persecute, to hunt, to chase, to make every effort for peace. Don't let it escape. But what if you have made every effort towards peace? What if you have hunted it down relentlessly, you've persecuted it, and it's not reciprocated? What if you've been mistreated? What if church has been a hard place for you? I don't believe that the Bible teaches that we should always stay in church no matter what. 
I think it's really clear that actually if there's dodgy teaching, then that is not a healthy church. If people are claiming to be Christians but openly living lives of rebellion against God, that's not a healthy church. But we're not looking for perfect churches. They don't exist. And they say, don't they, if if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. (laughs) What do we do if it's not time to leave, but if we're carrying bitterness, if we've been hurt and we're bitter? The analogy that's used here is of a bitter root. And a root is something that grows underground, as you probably all know. Now, I've got a mint plant on my balcony. And it is like the most alive thing I've ever seen and I do Sunday school so I see the life of them but this mint plant is even more alive than the most lively kids in our church nothing kills it every kind of pest imaginable has attacked it I mean we I don't know how I live on the 11th floor but we've had slugs I don't know how they got there it's a long climb but they made it and they attacked the mint plant it survived aphids it survived birds it survived chronic neglect sorry it survived storms we get crazy storms up there sometimes the mint plant's still going I've hacked it right back I've like cut it so there's nothing visible on the surface and still it survives because the life of it is in the root and if I wanted to get rid of that mint plant it wouldn't be enough just to remove everything that's at the surface level because I've tried that it would just regrow again from the root and that's what some plants are like And I think that's what bitterness is like. That's why it's called a root of bitterness. Bitterness is not something that can just be covered over with sweetness. It remains, it's still there if we do that. Bitterness needs to be dug up, uprooted, fully gotten rid of, or it's just going to regrow. So, how do we do that? If we're going to resolve to be people that are not just going to cover things over, but we're going to deal with it, if we're going to dig it up, how do we dig up the bitterness that we might find in our hearts from time to time? I'm going to give us three practical suggestions for how we can get started with that. And the first, and the most important, is to involve God. Another way that we could say that, maybe some more familiar terminology, is through prayer through confession and if you think that God can't take it if you think that God can't take the level of bitterness in your heart I mean I invite you to read the Psalms like Psalm 73 Psalm 109 and and I'm going to put up a verse now and I really hope no one like screenshots this on YouTube and says this is what I was trying to promote Psalm 137 verse 9 listen to the depths of bitterness here happy is the one who seizes your infant's and dashes them against the rocks. That is bitter. That is extreme. And that, you know, we need to understand the context of that. That is the cry of the exiles in Babylon. And actually the things that they want to see happen to their enemies are the things that they themselves have experienced. And they bring that bitterness, that that fury, that desire for revenge, they're bringing it to God. That's what we have here. And just so that we're really clear, I don't believe that the answer from heaven to that is yes, let's do it. You know, God's, God's heart actually is love for everyone. God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked and he certainly doesn't rejoice in the death of children. 
This is what it says in Ezekiel 33:11. So here's God speaking. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? So God takes pleasure not in the death of the wicked, not in dashing babies against rocks. God takes pleasure in people turning from those ways and living. So that's who God is. But we can still bring those awful thoughts of our hearts to him. We can go to him with our bitterness. We sung earlier on one of the songs, you see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. He knows what we're like inside. He knows the bitterness. He knows, you know, someone cuts me up on my bike and I want them to die. He knows that I am like that. He sees it all. One of the ways that our ancient brothers and sisters would take their pain, their mourning to God, their bitterness, was through fasting. And fasting is a really good way for us to be reminded, to reconnect with our need for God, with our dependence on God. And I think especially for many of us living in the rich West, living quite comfortable existences, actually fasting is probably the only experience of hunger we're really going to have and it's a really important experience because it connects our physical reality of that hunger with our spiritual reality, which is that we need God all the time, every day, just like we need food every day. And just a couple of things to be mindful of. If ever you've had any kind of struggles with body image or any kind of disordered attitude to eating, then I don't think that means you can't fast. That's been my history and I, I can fast now and it's fine for me in that area. But it is something that you need to approach with caution and maybe be accountable to someone else as well so it doesn't turn into something unhelpful for you. If you're sick as well, if there's, you know, you're taking medication that needs food or whatever, like, don't not take your medicine. But if you're new to fasting or if you have tried it before and, and it was awful, <laughs> then Tony wrote a really helpful guide a few years ago and if you contact the church office, we'd be happy to send it to you or, you know, chat to one of us and we can, we can talk to you about it. But I'd really encourage you that if you're experiencing bitterness, unforgiveness, hurt, anger, desire for revenge, fasting can actually be a way to bring that to God in desperation. And even as you become desperate for food, actually you will connect with your need, your deep need for God and his peace in your heart. So we said earlier, whatever we bring to God in prayer and confession and fasting, whatever the stuff inside our heart, we need to remember that he's not surprised. This is what Jesus said in Mark 2, 17. He said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to hear this stuff. He came to see your heart. And it makes him glad when we take our troubles to him. Even when I go to him with my bitterness, and I'm sorry, but I have to do that fairly frequently. <laughs> you know, Luke reminded us last week, and we looked at this passage last week about discipline and training, and he reminded us that God disciplines us not like a hard taskmaster, but like a perfect father. Now, for some of us, that's quite a difficult image because we certainly haven't all had perfect fathers here on earth. 
a lot of us have got quite complicated stories about fathers and mothers and family. And so those images in the Bible of God like a father, they, it can bring up some unhelpful stuff as well. Jesus says that if we want to know what the father is really like, we can look at him. We can look at the way he is, the way he treated people, and we can know what the father's like. So just, I mean, there's so much, but I just want to share with you one thing that Jesus said about what he is like and therefore what the father is like. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's what the father is like. Whatever your earthly father was like, if you had one, whatever you received when you were found to have done something wrong by your earthly parents or carers, whatever attitude they, they had, actually, this is what God is like. We find rest for our souls when we come to him. And he hasn't come for the spiritually perfect, but for the sick. He's come for people like me. I can go to him, I don't have to hide. So that's what God is like. Let's take our bitterness to him in prayer, confession and fasting. Let's involve God in our bitterness to uproot it. The second step is to involve others. Now, this one might need a bit more care. You, you can say anything you like to God. We, we, I mean, we saw like the atrocious things that one of the psalmists said to God you can say you can bring all of it to God actually if we're going to share our bitterness our desire for revenge our anger our unforgiveness if we're going to share that with someone else I think we actually need to proceed with a bit more caution God can take it but not everyone can we need to choose someone who's not going to take sides we need to choose someone who is not going to gossip that's so important we might need to filter what we say a bit. Sometimes I've you know, needed to have a friend help me to pray and process a situation and, and actually I don't need to tell them who I'm talking about or any of the details. I, I just say like, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm really angry with someone. Will you, you know, pray with me about this? And we do and yeah, we don't necessarily need to share the gory details with a person all the time in the way that we do with God. And I think we need to think about what our motives are for sharing it as well. Are we sharing because we want someone to help us to get that godly perspective? Are we sharing because, you know, we, we, we really need some support in that? Or actually, is there a kind of a desire for gossip? Do we just really want someone to go, oh, that's terrible, you were totally wronged? That, you know, that sometimes is there. We need to be honest about what our motives are and that they're mixed and that's maturity, being honest with ourselves about what those motives are, being honest about when they're mixed and choosing wise people to go to, wise people to involve. And if you don't know who to turn to, if maybe you're new around here um, and you're wondering, well, who, who could I speak to in church if I, if I want to get some, some help with the situation, I would definitely heartily recommend any of our life group leaders. That's not because there aren't other people in the church who'd be fantastic for that. We've got like an embarrassment of riches here, honestly. Like there's so many wise, amazing, mature people. But if you're new and you don't know who's who, then just, you know, one, any one of our life group leaders would be a fantastic person 
for you to talk to if you need help, if you need to involve someone else in what's going on, in uprooting that bitterness. So step one, involve God. Step two, involve others. Step three, repeat. I'm really sorry if you were thinking that step three would be some magical thing that you'd never heard of before, some deep spiritual secret from the hidden books, but it's not, there's no new secret. It's everything that we've already said, and for many of you, it's what you already know, that you have to go back over and over and back around that process of back to God. Maybe get some help from someone else. Back to God. And, you know, sometimes forgiveness takes years. Sometimes it really is that kind of iterative, repeated process. And I've seen people, like, I've got really good friends in our church who've had to forgive really big stuff. And it has been a really long journey. But they've got there. And there's some incredible testimonies around that. And then sometimes it is actually just an, an instant thing. And that's brilliant when it happens. I don't think that it's a sign that, you know, the, the person who forgave quickly was more holy than the person who had to go on a long journey. But whoever you are, whatever the situation, if, if actually there's still bitterness there, go back, back to the start, involve God. You, you know, he's not going to be like, we had this conversation before. <laughs> One of my big fears as I get older is that I'll start repeating myself. And the other day I was talking to Tim and he was like, he let me go for like five minutes and he was like, you've told me this three times. And I was like, you should have told me that in five seconds. But with God, it's okay to just repeat. We can go back to him with the same stuff again. He's not going to get angry. You know, the same situation, whatever. Just go back to God. Step three, repeat. Because it's so important to deal with this stuff. I, you know, if, if you are someone who has ever struggled with bitterness, and I suspect that's most of us, it's probably, you don't need me to tell you that it's going to affect other people around you. You've probably been affected by the bitterness of others. There's a saying that one bad apple spoils the whole barrel. And I think that's the same is true of, of bitterness, of unforgiveness, in the church, in families, in relationships. It is kind of contagious. It has a big impact. It needs to be dealt with. Even if you think you're doing a good job of hiding it, you're not, <laughs> sorry. This, the sugar doesn't cover it up enough. It needs to be uprooted. And there's hope because God's heart is to work with you to do that. But what if you have truly, deeply been wronged? What if the stuff that you need to forgive, the stuff that has hurt you, is actually really serious? There are people who have been deeply wronged by the church. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, he was like the ultimate innocent victim of abuse. And he didn't say, forgive them, Father, it's just what I deserve. If what was happening to Jesus was, was all right, if it was what he deserved, there'd be no need for forgiveness. When we forgive, we, we're basically, we have to acknowledge that a wrong has been done. That's why there's a need for forgiveness in the first place. One of the most challenging, most offensive Christian doctrines is the love of enemies, is forgiveness. We have been forgiven and so we forgive and that is really challenging. But it doesn't mean that people who abuse positions of power should stay in those positions. And we have, we have a safeguarding policy here at church. We review it every year. We get outside input on it. 
And we have structures in place for if ever there's any kind of allegation of abuse, like spiritual or otherwise, against any of our leaders. And we don't do that because the government tells us we have to, or social services would want to see it. We do it because it, it really matters, because church should be the safest place on earth. It should be a place where people can come and know that they'll be safe. So if church isn't safe, that is a scandal. And that is wrong. And so if you've been affected by something like that, then please don't keep on just swallowing sugar and hoping that it will cover it up. Come to the Good Shepherd. Let him work with you to uproot the bitterness, whatever's been done to you. It's not okay to remain in bitterness. Allow him to teach you and lead you to forgiveness. And sometimes it's also right to take action to protect others as well. So let's not put sugar on our grapefruit. Let's uproot the bitterness. And just before I move on from this, I just want to say a word to anyone in the room who is in any kind of position of leadership in the church. And that's a lot of you, because we're the kind of church where a lot of people do a lot of stuff. How are we making sure that no bitter root grows up because of us in others? You know, so much of what we've talked about so far has been about when there's bitterness inside of us, how do we deal with that? Equally, you could take this passage as a challenge not to be the cause of that in someone else. So how are we as leaders, how are we, you know, all of us in the church, how are we working to protect our brothers and sisters from from any occasion for bitterness? persecute peace hunt it down leaders should be Jesus people if you've been hurt by a leader especially if you've been hurt by me I can only ask for your forgiveness if you are a leader maybe this is the most important part of of what we're looking at this morning maybe we need to ask the Holy Spirit to show us if there's anything in the way that we are living or the way that we're leading that is going to cause bitterness in others. Maybe we need to change something. So two verses out of 18. Oh, and there's a lot more to say. And I haven't even got to my favourite verses. But we need to sanitise all the chairs. And also the kids team have their limits. So I'm going to leave you guys to do some work yourselves. Uh, and I'm just going to finish by looking at the two mountains. So you're going to have to go home and do your own research about Esau. And, you know, people will say that Christian preachers are obsessed with sex. I'm literally going to have to skim over verse 16, which talks about sexual immorality. It doesn't mean it's not important, but I really want to get to the absolute crux of this passage. Because so far, a lot of what I said, if you just went now, it'd just be like, oh, that was a nice self-help talk. And the gospel is so much more than that. So let's look at the two mountains as we finish. In Seattle, in North America... You can see Mount Rainier from everywhere in the city. You got the Space Needle, there's the mountain. You land at the airport, there's the mountain. It's like this sort of landmark that you can see from everywhere. And, you know, for the children of Israel, Mount Sinai was kind of like that. It was this mountain they could see from everywhere. It, it dominated their thinking because it was the mountain where they were given the covenant. It was a terrifying, awesome place. I feel like I need to get Natan up here to do a drum roll as we read these next few verses. Hebrews 12, 18 to 21. Just listen, just, just close your eyes. Just imagine this mountain. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire 
to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. And you can read all about that in Exodus 19, Exodus 20, the giving of the law. Moses went up the mountain, everybody else stayed down and they were terrified. Moses himself was terrified. It's a terrifying mountain. And that was this dominant image for these people. This was the place where the covenant that made them a people was given. But what a contrast we get with this other mountain. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. So you've not come to that mountain, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Such a contrast there. And that the big thing is that for the second mountain, we are invited, we can approach it. It's not burning fire that we can't come near, we can come near, we are invited. But it's really important that we know that that's because of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. It's not just, oh, do you know what, guys? I've changed my mind. Actually, you can come. It's Jesus in his blood that made that new covenant that means that we can come to God. Whatever our state, we can come to God. You know, the blood of Abel, it's a sad story. You can look it up, but it didn't really change anything. But the blood of Jesus, who was also an innocent man, because he died, we can live. That's a new covenant that enables us to approach God. We can be part of that joyful assembly. And those two mountains, they're connected to everything else I've said. Because if you're consumed with bitterness, or maybe if you are actually really aware that you have been the cause of bitterness for others, whether you've been wronged or you've wronged others, or probably like most of us both, whatever, because of Jesus, you can still come to God. You can still be in that covenant because he has done it. He has taken the punishment He's made peace for us with God. So I'm just going to ask the band to come back up again. The conclusion of this passage is this. Verses 28 to 29. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So guys, let's, let's worship God, freely exposing the depths of our heart to him because we can Hebrews 4:16. This is the invitation to us now. So why don't you stand? I'm going to read this and then the band will take over. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.